Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. Uh, Hey, Michael. Thanks for joining us this morning. Oh, good morning, Terry. It's my pleasure. Yeah, Thank you. of course. And um, I, I have to say, I've been so looking forward to having this conversation with you because when I came to see your, well, to have our boot camp in Livingston, Montana, we got to um, to hold the first sessions in your amazing facility. So that's when I learned about what you're doing. And I feel like there's so much that the world can learn from what you guys are doing. So I'm super excited you're on the on the show this morning. Well, you're you're very generous with your comments there. Um, you know, we are in fact trying to make a difference here in Livingston, Montana, mm-hmm. and you know, we have to keep in mind the scale here. Right. I think as we talk about different subjects, because we're. We're serving a community, a town, Livingston, of 7,500 people, mm-hmm. and the entire county, which we also serve, is is just about 17,000 people. Mm-hmm. So that I, what I have learned, Tara, is that that scale, that size population base, is is very workable. There's a lot you can do. Uh, research, et cetera, that you can do and get pretty immediate and meaningful uh, results. Yeah. So it's it's been fun for for a guy who retired from you know big corporations and moved here to go fishing. Um, but you know my background in for profit uh, business was always at some large scale, you know, right. really research driven. Yeah. So, yeah. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. So um, one of my favorite things is talking to people who I, I call them having failed at retirement because I see people like you with <laughs> these incredible talents all around the country doing amazing things. And and your your story, so, so about how you started um, – working in the food pantry and now how you've tra- completely transformed it is just so inspiring. So why don't you s- start by just telling people kind of how you got into this whole thing? Well, it's um, it, it's a story that uh, I hope other people of, of my demographic profile will will try to pursue because what you just said about talented, experienced people around the country who retire, I think there is a workforce there that is just remarkable in its potential strength and impact on issues in this country. Mm-hmm. And you know, my story kind of began when, when I had the chance to retire and, and uh uh, figure out what I wanted to do next, and and my wife and I had been coming out to Montana almost every summer for oh, at least a dozen years. And when I retired, and we tried to figure out what we were going to do, um, we decided it was time for a new adventure, and and we would just move to Montana. So we did that in the first year after we got here. We we did all the 
typical things that newbies do. You know, we went fishing a lot. We hiked in Yellowstone National Park a lot. We built a house, and and um, so we we stayed real busy. And then when the house was finished, and and um, I think I I woke up one morning and thought, gee, you know, the toughest thing I'm going to do all day is which fly am I going to tie on when I go fishing? <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, that that didn't sound like a real good long-term plan. Right, <laughs> um, right. Yeah, and, and at the same time, I just sort of accidentally met some people from the uh, Livingston Food Pantry and, and got to know them and visited the food pantry and saw what was happening there, and this was January 2009, so the economy was stinky, and the little pantry uh, was just being overwhelmed, and um, the wonderful, loving, hard-working group of volunteers really didn't know how to respond, mm-hmm. and um, they asked me if I would come in and, and manage the pantry for them. And, and, you know, I thought, well, it's a good way to get to know the community and give mm-hmm. something back. And yep. only a couple days a week won't cut into fishing time much. And, <laughs> and so, so I got, got involved. And, um, you know, I, I, before that, I had not one minute's experience in a food pantry or or in a non profit for that for that matter. You know, the yeah. closest I'd ever come to um, you know, a non profit tax exempt organization was once in a while making a donation to to one. Um, and so it, the, the the action really began when I I decided I'd better try to figure out what it is I'm supposed to do. <laughs> as the manager I'm, of this thing, right? Yeah, as yeah. the manager of a food pantry. So I, I kind of went on the road and went out and visited other food pantries and and um, met people, talked to people about their operations and, and all, and, and came back to Livingston really... Um, Kind of uh, agitated, disgruntled, mm. perhaps, because yeah. I really didn't. Uh, yeah, I really didn't like what I saw. Right. Um, because it was pretty much the same model as what Livingston was doing. You know, mm-hmm. wonderful people working real hard to feed people in need, but the process was was kind of a closed loop. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they'd raise some money, use that money to go out and buy as much cheap food as they could, pass the food out to people in need, go home, get up tomorrow, and start the same process over again. Right. And, um, you know, that that just didn't look like it was having a meaningful long long lasting impact on the on the community mm-hmm. and um and being an old marketing guy i wanted to know what what was really going on here who who are our customers in the food pantry and that's right. how we can we consider the people who come in the food pantry they are our, our customers our mm-hmm. clients and 
as far as I was concerned, I'm, the food pantry is in competition with uh, the local grocery stores. And, um, and if we were going to compete and have meaningful impact in the community, we needed to know who they were, mm-hmm. why they needed to be in the food pantry, and begin to define the root causes of hunger uh, in, in Livingston, Montana, and, and then begin to, to address those root causes. Mm-hmm. And you know, we, we started doing research to, to learn who we, we were serving, and you know, we've got a wonderful asset here in Livingston in that we're only 30 miles from Bozeman, the home of uh, Montana State University. Mm-hmm. And so we tapped into that population, got uh, uh, dietetic interns engaged, uh, we got business students engaged, and we began to do survey work in the food pantry. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what we learned was pretty remarkable, especially for me, because again, you know, I'm I'm this crotchety old capitalist who, you know, had <laughs> yeah. I had I driven by a food pantry and seen the line of people out front like like we have on a typical day, I would have just quickly dismissed them as being lazy and unmotivated and and probably would have said something real constructive like go get a job. Right, right. And yeah. So, you know, as we began to do research and understand why people needed to be in our food pantry, it was really eye-opening for me. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of people who worked and volunteered in the food pantry, um you know, we we learned, for instance, that 75% of the people who come into our food pantry needing help are there because of unemployment or underemployment. Mm. And these were people there telling me, gee, I'm looking for work, I want to work, but I can't find anything. Right. Yeah, and so, of course, that piqued my interest, and, and we did some focus group studies, and we saw two two challenges real quick: um, lack of marketable job skills, right, and and poor health, right, and poor health, um, and they're eating bad food, right? Exactly. Yeah. So we you know we saw those things, so we got the dietetic interns from Montana State University engaged. We developed survey documents, and we began to survey pantry clients uh, focusing on health, health care. And what we learned was was pretty frightening, I think. You know, we we learned, for instance, that about 40% of the people who come into the food pantry are diabetic. Wow. Wow. a much higher percentage have, uh, uh, if they're not diabetic, they have somebody in the household who is, and then and then almost half, almost fifty percent, told us that they have high blood pressure and or heart disease. Right. And we're talking about a very diverse population. It's not skewed elderly or 
too younger. It's it's more, you know, we're talking about people 20 to 25 to 55. Mm-hmm. You know, that is our largest age breakout. Right. And and when you really begin to ask other questions about health, you know, I think those numbers were probably underreported because the majority of the people surveyed have not seen a doctor within the past 12 months. Right. And the majority of them, when they did last see a doctor, was in, in an emergency room. Right. And, you know, in an emergency room, they don't check your A1C and triglycerides and all that. They they patch up what hurts and send you home. Right. Um, so, you know, health and health, well-being is, is a huge issue for us. And so knowing... Beginning to know these things about our customers, you know, the lack mm-hmm. of job skills, the, the poor health, the, the particular health challenges. You know, I, I looked at the product we were putting on the shelf. And like every food pantry I visited, the food we were putting on the shelf was predominantly industrial, ultra-processed food that, in fact, was making people sicker. Mm-hmm. High fructose corn syrup and things like exactly. that, Exactly. Right? Yep. You know, the first or second ingredient in most all of that food is sugar, salt, corn syrup, etc. Right. Now, you know, in moderation and in their place, those things are, are not bad things, mm-hmm. but... The foods that most food pantries buy um, are are the foods are are made up predominantly of those items and mm-hmm. have been ultra processed. So basically, all the nutrition has been beaten out of that food. Mm-hmm. And you know, responding to to the the job situation and the lack of marketable job skills. One of the things I did was visit our local job service office and learn that in the 12 months prior to to when I was doing this research, they had posted in Livingston um, over 700 job openings. Hmm. And when I drilled deeper into those job openings to learn what kind of jobs, I saw that about 14, 15% of them were for restaurant cooks. And related kitchen workers. Right. So I went out and, and interviewed restaurant owners and, and chefs, and they all pretty much told me the same thing. We can't find anybody to hire. Right. And nobody's got the training or experience, and we don't have the capacity to bring somebody in and train them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the my first response was, okay, our, our new food resource center is going to be uh, heavy into job training, culinary right. training, so preparing people for jobs as restaurant cooks. Right. So when you were doing this research, um, were you you weren't in the building you're in right now, right? Were you some was the pantry somewhere well, else we at were, that point? Yeah, that's a real good point, Tara, because the Livingston Food Pantry at that time was in a little old, dirty, mouse-infested automotive garage. Oh, my, yeah. 
on the on the far east edge of town, mm-hmm. no transportation, depressing warehouse kind of neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And and what I found was that most every food pantry I visited was in the same type of location. Right. When and what I saw and, and learned communicating with people in these communities and and talking with people who manage food pantries is that food pantries, I've concluded, and this, this may be a gross generalization, um, but my conclusion was and still is that most food pantries are marginalized and pushed out to the edge of town in some low-rent warehouse district and communities in this one this one especially uh, tried to to try to believe that the community really didn't need a food pantry right interesting you know, that yeah there yeah really aren't yeah there aren't any hungry people in Livingston in fact I had a woman tell me that in a in a um, presentation I was giving shortly after I got involved with the pantry. I, I was talking to a group and, and sharing what I had learned and the number of people we were serving. And this one woman approached me afterwards and she pointed her finger at me and said, I don't believe you. Huh, interesting. She said, there's no hungry people in Livingston. Uh-huh. And, and I just looked at her and I said, well, why do you think that? She said, well, if family is struggling or needs help, they can tell their neighbor and their neighbor will help them. And, and um, so there, there really isn't a problem. And I looked at her, Tara, and I, and this was a woman probably 65, 70 years right. old. I looked at her and I asked her this question. If you were hungry, struggling and didn't have enough food in your house Mm -hmm. to meet the needs, your needs and your family's needs, would you go tell your neighbor? Right. And she looked at me and she said, no, I wouldn't. Mm -hmm. I said, well, there you go. Right. Right. So you were out in this, in this, um, in this warehouse or the old garage, right on the edge of yep. town. And it must've been about the time that you realized that you were needing to get involved in job training, um, that you realized you needed a new building. Right. 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 Yeah. Because I think the, a food pantry in that environment, which is serving people who are, struggling. Mm-hmm. You know, we know, for instance, based on all the demographic information we collect about our clients, is that virtually 100% of the households we serve are living in poverty. Right. They're at or below the poverty level for their size household. Mm-hmm. They struggle every day, Terry. You know, I'd, when I first got involved with the pantry, and people would come in and I'd hear these stories, I would blame them mm-hmm. for their problems. And what I realized was I had been so lucky to grow up in a household with a 
with a mother and father present, hardworking, great role models. My brother and I were taught the value of, of health and education and working hard. And, and you know, I, I just assumed that everybody had those lessons. Everybody knew those things. Mm-hmm. And the people we see coming in our food pantry are people who have not ever had those lessons. Mm-hmm. And what I realized was I, I can't blame them for that. Mm-hmm. It's not really their fault. Now, sure, a lot of people have made poor decisions regarding you know, life choices and, and their behavior, <clears throat> but I'm not going to hold that against them because that doesn't help them get out of poverty. And that's ultimately what our mission is. Mm-hmm. You know, and when we were in the little automotive garage, we were distributing several hundred thousand pounds of food into the local food system every year. Mm-hmm. We were helping feed about, on average, 10% of the population. Hmm. We were spending a lot of money buying food. Right. Yet nobody in town knew we had a food pantry. And here's here's this little tax-exempt organization playing a huge role in the local food system, the local economy, and 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 doing it pretty much in a in a stealth manner. Mm-hmm. Nobody nobody saw it. Right. And so what I decided was that a food pantry has got to step forward and 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 take a a leadership role in the community and mm-hmm. and begin to to develop programs that impact economic development health care and education and mm-hmm. that's really um, where i I started thinking about building an asset right a building in Livingston not out on the edge of town. But right downtown, mm-hmm. you know, our new building is one block off of Main Street, terrific visibility and great accessibility mm-hmm. um, for people who who are living in poverty, living in, in low, uh, you know, affordable housing um, in the area. Mm-hmm. And so to to begin to play the role that I wanted us to play, which was really based on realization that what we're dealing with isn't really hunger. You know, it just makes me crazy when I hear organizations stand up and and ask for donations and say, uh, we're solving hunger. Mm -hmm. Well, most of them aren't solving anything. they're, They're making food available to people. Um, so maybe they're not hungry today, but they're not really solving anything long term. And that's that's what we made the decision to do. I mm-hmm. wanted to have this impact so that we could help people lift themselves out of poverty. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't feed people out of poverty. We could pass out food twenty four seven, and people would be right back in line tomorrow for more food hungry again and still living in poverty. So, uh, you know, from a long-term meaningful perspective, what, what have we really accomplished? 
So right. So so yeah. you've come up with a model for your um, organization that is unlike anything I've ever seen. The dimensions to it are amazing. Well, you know, I started thinking about what assets do you need to to have the the meaningful impact, systemic impact in the three areas that I named, economic mm-hmm. development, health care, and education, because my conclusion was that if we can if we can have impact, if if we can influence those three areas, then hunger will begin to solve itself. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about, you know, okay, based on what we know about unemployment, we're going to do culinary training. We're going to do job training programs. Mm-hmm. So what do we need in order to do that? Well, we need uh, a, a room, a classroom facility. We need a kitchen that uh, is equipped uh, so that we can train people to use equipment in a in a restaurant or institution kitchen. So so the list of assets that we needed began to grow because as I looked at the food that we were distributing, a couple of things occurred to me. That one, if we changed our food acquisition and distribution model, we could <clears throat> pardon me, we could impact those three areas healthcare economic development, and education by simply shifting how we were spending our food acquisition dollars from buying this big, uh, highly processed industrial food from big companies and putting our, our food acquisition dollars in an envelope and mailing them out of the state, uh, out of our community, if we began to purchase from area farmers and ranchers and bring that food into our facility and process it then and and distribute it to people in need in the pantry, then we could begin to impact economic development because we're keeping our dollars in our community where they keep churning and and driving job creation and, and opportunity, we would impact health care because the food that we are acquiring and processing, minimally processing, is nutritious and good for people, particularly the audience we serve. And as we're doing that and distributing that food, we're offering classes and educating people when they come into the pantry for food. So we're, we're touching all three of the areas that I think are important. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to bring in food and we're going to process it, okay, we need a commercial kitchen to do that. Mm-hmm. If we're going to help farmers through you know, through purchasing from them, and I do forward contracting with farmers so that uh, they know what we need um, well in advance, and we we come to an agreed upon price that's good for the farmer and good for 
our center, and we bring that food in here to process, we've also got another opportunity to help the farmer mm-hmm. open up new markets by doing value-added processing for the farmer. Right. Because I've had so many farmers tell me, and I'm sure you've heard this many times, that they can grow you know, wonderful organic produce, for instance, and they can't get enough return on that. The margins are so thin that they end up selling it just as a commodity item mm-hmm. to the highest bidder. Well, the people who will spend more want that, you know, those beautiful organic beets that are piled up in the back of your pickup truck. They, they can't take it into their restaurant or their school or hospital and store it and clean it and process it, dice it, whatever they need to do. They don't have the capacity, the time, the people to do that. But if the farmer can go to the restaurants and the schools and the hospital and say, hey, um, I've got uh, organic beets, how would you like them? And the, and the chef in the restaurant can say, gee, you know, I'd like to buy 500 pounds of your beets, but I want them uh, diced and I want them vacuum-packed and frozen in five-pound bags. Now the farmers getting into that part of the the economic totem pole where there's some real margin. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, if we're going to do value-added processing for farmers, what do we need? Well, mm-hmm. that added added um, <laughs> equipment and and space to the the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that. Um, that I wanted to make sure we were able to do is support new business startups, Mm -hmm. entrepreneurs who want to start food businesses. So we develop programs for entrepreneurs. We've got very special kitchen rental rates for entrepreneurs. We've got teams of local chefs who will come in and help an entrepreneur develop recipes. We've got uh, guys like myself who will help write business plans. We have a team of finance people at a local bank who help with with financial uh, projections. Uh, we've even got um, a local graphic artist who helps pro bono with uh, with. Uh, package and, and logo design, mm-hmm. and uh, so we try to provide everything that uh, an entrepreneur needs to successfully start a business. Mm-hmm. So what do we need in that regard? And then coming into the pantry, finally, and, and remember, the, the, what we're in is so much more than just distributing food. Distributing right. food, it has become one of the lesser activities around mm-hmm. here, though it's still our, our core uh, mission. Right. So we wanted to have a food pantry that looks more like a whole foods market. Right. And and is warm and, and bright and welcoming and because the people we, we deal with and we try to serve and help aren't in the food pantry you know, by choice, really. Mm-hmm. 
you know, nobody jumps out of bed in the morning and says, gee, I'm, I'm going to live in poverty today and be hungry and have to go to the food pantry. You know, nobody, nobody starts the day that way. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that's most important in our food pantry, after the quality of the food we're distributing, <clears throat> is how we treat these people. Uh, because most of the people we see come in the food pantry, again, don't want to be there. Most of them have been chronically unemployed, chronically ill. They've been disenfranchised by the community. They're not participating economically, politically, or socially. And, and the, the longer someone lives that way, the harder it is to get them out of that situation and into something better. So we, we really try to get involved and respond to each individual, work with them, and our goal is that when somebody leaves our food pantry, it's not just with a box of good, nutritious food. It's with a smile on their face and a little more hope than they had when they came in. Um, so that's that's an important part of our mission. Right. And, and let me let me comment on something else here regarding that. You know, I hear a whole lot about so-called food rescue programs. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you know, I've looked at food rescue programs and in different communities and different operations, food uh, uh, pantry operations and. I don't like don't mm-hmm. like food rescue. I think it's the biggest red herring going for mm-hmm. a couple of reasons. It's it's insulting to people. Right. So you, you know, get people, you like you get used food or expired food or yeah, like that's what right, you're good you enough know, for, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. That, you know, so many pantries depend on this so-called food rescue, and mm-hmm. and they're, they're accepting produce that is over the hill. It's right. worn out. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it should be going to maybe a local farmer to feed pigs and goats, mm-hmm. not human beings. Because when when somebody comes in the pantry, and what we offer them is, you know, this wilted brown produce. I don't care how you present it. The message is, well, the grocery store was throwing this away because it was old and nobody would buy it, nobody would eat it. But you're poor and in need, so it's okay for you to eat it. Mm -hmm. You know, and that is absolutely counter to the point I made a few minutes ago about right. helping rebuild self-confidence and self-esteem. Right. So you, when I went into your food pantry, I was, my first, my first reaction was, can I buy meat here? Because it is such a beautiful <laughs> place, right? It's, it's yeah. just, the whole experience of it is so different than a food, typical food pantry. 
Well, let me let me make one more point regarding what we were just talking about food rescue. Sure. Because I think this is important, and and I I I preach this to food pantry managers every time I get the chance. The other thing that is that I don't like about food rescue is that it in fact eliminates a very strong potential market food pantries for farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, local farmers who are struggling to, to make a living, struggling to provide good, fresh, local food for their local food systems, it puts me in competition with them. If, right. I'm, if I'm settling for this throwaway food from some grocery store, I'm not developing the the plan and and the ways to buy from my local food producers, mm-hmm. farmers, ranchers. So from an economic standpoint, I don't like food rescue mm-hmm. programs. Right, right. Um, you know, and, and people will say, well, gee, that's so much more expensive. Well, it's not that much more expensive, but it is more expensive. So as food pantry managers, we just have to figure it out. We mm-hmm. have to figure out how we're going to uh, pay for it, how we're going to bring that kind of food in. Now, back to your point about our food pantry. The One of the primary reasons that I hired the the contract firm, the, the design engineering firm that I did, was because... They, they have a local office in Bozeman, and they have a big office in Austin, Texas. <laughs> well, guess who's in Austin, Texas? Whole Foods. Whole Foods Market. Yes. And, and uh, before I signed a contract with this outfit, I said, you're going to get the job, but one of the contingencies is, You've got to have one of your Whole Foods team designers down in Austin on your team to do this project. That is a riot. No wonder <laughs> it feels the way it does. Exactly. Yeah, isn't that so, great? So, you know, I said, I said, make me a little tiny Whole Foods market. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that's, what, that's what it feels like. And, yeah. and so, so this issue of affordability... Um, so you've been you you are you've been working at this and clearly you've been able to fund it. So so let's talk about how you make that work cuz I think it's probably as big a transformation in people's thinking as just the whole business model of what you're doing was transformational. I looked at the financing of how our little pantry was running and it was typical. Right. You know, we People, volunteers would would go out. They'd mail out some letters. Maybe they'd have a an event, uh, you know, with the the, the usual uh, silent auction, uh, and try to raise money mm-hmm. um, from donors. Right. And what what I concluded was that if we were really going to be able to accomplish. You know, building the building that we built, you know, with this big industrial commercial kitchen and the beautiful food pantry and and a community 
meeting room that is a wonderful place where the community can come together uh, about all kinds of issues. We were going to have to go about it in a little bit different manner and and not depend on donors. Mm-hmm. What I decided was that if we were going to be a significant player in this marketplace, if we were going to have the impact in those three areas that I've talked about, we had to truly engage this community mm-hmm. in ways that involved them in the process, not just of bringing together the monies needed to build and equip this building, but in an ongoing sense so that they remained involved. Mm. So what, what I decided was I don't want donors. I want investors. Mm-hmm. I want people who are committed to investing their charitable dollars in a way that creates the lasting, meaningful impact that I've talked about mm-hmm. in those three areas. It keeps coming back. You know, our stool's got three legs on it, mm-hmm. economic development, health care, and education. And what I have concluded over the years is that people who have financial capacity to, to engage in that kind of activity are they have money because they're smart. Right. And they and, and they think about things as investing and not as I mean, they look for opportunities to invest in no matter what they do in their lives, right? That's precisely. Yeah. Precisely. So when I began to raise the money to build this facility, and I made up my mind right off the bat that as a tax exempt organization there was no way we were going to we were going to finance this with debt. Right. You know, I wasn't going to talk to our investors about gee, we need money to pay interest on a loan. Mhm. So before we had a groundbreaking ceremony for our new 5,000 square foot building mm-hmm. in downtown Livingston, we had all the funds in the bank. So how much did you have to raise? $1.6 million. That's amazing. That I mean, it's not lot. amazing to me that it costs that much. It's an amazing number for a fundraise for a capital campaign well, in, a, in a community. Well, maybe not. I mean, Livingston is a rural community, but you have... You have an unusual group of, of you know, seasonal residents, right? Right. Yep. And, and I've, I've got to put that on the table. You're absolutely right that not every community of 7,500 people could pull this off the way we did. Right. You know, I think they could pull it off, but it would have to be done a little differently. Yeah, you'd um, probably have to use, like, EDA money and stuff. You'd have to, you'd have right. to raise it in a different manner. But In a different manner. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that um, not knowing anything about fundraising ultimately kind of worked in my favor. Yeah, because yeah, because you I talk like a this, business person. I, I, yeah, I approached this just like 
a, another uh, marketing project, you know, mm-hmm. another product launch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I encourage everybody in the food pantry business to think like product managers at Procter & Gamble. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, that's what you are. You're, you're a marketing person, mm-hmm. like it or not. That's what it comes down to. So, so I talk to people about investing in this community and using the Livingston Food Resource Center, using us like their charitable investment bank mm-hmm. and, and trust us with their charitable investments to reinvest those dollars, their dollars, in this community in ways that do, in fact, drive economic development, health care, and education. Mm-hmm. You're getting tired of me saying that. I no, know, but no, that's... but that's really good. I mean, part of it, it, you know, part of successful organizations have leaders who ha- are have, you know, a well-defined goal, right? And and you're repeating it because it's a well-defined goal for you. No. Well, yeah. That's what we do, right? And um, so, so and you raised the, major, so you raised that, so you raised the one point six million, um, and then you've also been raising operating money in addition to that, right? Because right. you don't yep. self fund, so you you do have some program revenue, though. I mean, right, op- right, or we, operating we, income from what you do. Yep, yep. we um, intentionally d- designed. Uh, revenue-generating activities into our building design and our our programs Um, because, you know, I want that stream that I, that revenue stream that I can have perhaps greater control over. You know, Mm -hmm. I can can make decisions uh, to expand or contract. I can make decisions that impact uh, cost and, and 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 cost efficiency. Um, uh, so we've we've got programs like the kitchen entrepreneur program that I talked about, the and and for existing food processors, um, the kitchen rents by the hour, mm-hmm. and we also do. Uh, value-added processing. We do contract packing. For instance, there is a salsa company based in Bozeman that uh, outgrew its its production capacity. So now we are making uh, salsa and dips for this company. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, making them, packaging them, at, and and delivering them to to them for for their distribution in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, we also do catering mm-hmm. out of our kitchen. Uh, you, you've seen our, our community meeting room. Right. And, you know, we've got groups and organizations meeting there, everything from the weekly rotary luncheon to, um, you know, different companies and, and other nonprofits coming in for all types of meetings, and they frequently ask us to cater lunch or dinner or even breakfast, and we do that. And I can uh, say, by the way, I got to put a plug in because you guys catered for us, and the food was fantastic. 
I mean, and, and, I mean, seriously, and, and it's the local sourced ingredients. You are you're blessed right. with having quite a diverse agriculture around you. So, my goodness, that food was wonderful. Well, that's that's good, and that's that's our goal. We want to be. Uh, people don't generally think of uh, food pantry as being a great place to go eat. Right. But you know, that's <laughs> that's another. Another thing we we want and try to be mm-hmm. um, well, and, and things and like you break you bake bread for the clients in the food pantry, right? Right. You know that's uh, I'm glad you mentioned that, Tara, because every food pantry in Montana, except this one, mm-hmm. depends on donated bread coming from local grocery stores. Right. And I've I've done a survey of the food pantries in Montana. Um, and ask them about bread, and and that's what they're dependent on. And they tell me that the bread they get is is typically old, frequently moldy, and it was you know it was squishy Wonder Bread and not mm-hmm. very nutritious to begin with. But this is what they're passing out to the people in their food pantry. Right. We're the only food pantry in Montana that bakes all of its own bread. You're probably the only food pantry in the whole country that bakes all its own bread. I mean, honestly. And then and then you you source the wheat locally too, or or in Montana, right? Exactly. Yeah. All the all the flour and grain and everything we we use is purchased from Montana sources, Montana ranchers Mm -hmm. and farmers and it's mostly uh, organic mm-hmm. and all of our bread is is whole wheat we just for instance we we just shifted our our basic uh, whole wheat recipe to using a wheat called kamut mm. and this is an ancient grain that is grown up in the northern part of montana by a rancher up there and the reason we shifted is it makes it makes wonderful bread, but it has a very uh, high protein mm-hmm. content, higher than the normal uh, whole wheat bread flour. So you know you're you're coming into the pantry and you're getting a whole wheat bread made with this high protein wheat, and uh, our bread is so so good and so popular that uh, we sell bread and and a couple of local small grocery stores. I was going to say, because your bread is wonderful, so I bet you, yeah, yeah, there's a market for selling it. Yeah, the hospital buys their bread from us. Hmm. Um, The Meals on Wheels program buys bread from us. Isn't that amazing? So, again, all these different revenue streams, kitchen rentals, value-added processing, uh, room rental, catering, all that adds up. And in our last year's budget, 2018, that revenue covered all of the salaries in our kitchen staff. Terrific. So, and and that's that's the goal. You know, mm-hmm. incrementally, I want to be able to cover our direct costs for salaries and things of that activity and and that that takes the pressure off Mm -hmm. um, of some of our other uh, 
needs and sources for for funding. Right. Um, so one of the other things you and I talked about was that I found fascinating was um, your your creative raising money into designated funds for things like um, like slaughtering animals that might not otherwise even make it to a slaughterhouse. Right. Oh yeah. 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 I think you know just overall. Uh, we go about our business in a, in a pretty tactical yeah, way. Yeah, of course. Because you know we're we're not uh, we're not just um, putting a pile of food out and saying, "Okay, people, come and come and get food." Mm-hmm. We're we're looking for and identifying and researching specific uh, market needs, real real kind of niche marketing. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, what we do with ranchers, for instance, what, what you just referred to is a program for ranchers that if they have a beef cow, and there's a lot of beef raised around Livingston, Montana. Right. Um, if they have a cow that for whatever reason they don't want to take to market um, because they they won't get any money for it, and, and a good example is a rancher nearby who called me this past fall and said he had a prize bull that broke his back mm. and he couldn't sell it. Mm-hmm. To, and, and But we had um, a processor, local processor, go and pick up that cow, that bull. Mm-hmm. And the rancher told me what the full retail value of the animal was if mm-hmm. he had been able to, to sell it. Mm-hmm. So I gave the rancher a receipt for a tax-deductible donation for the full retail value of the animal. Mm -hmm. So the rancher got a nice tax break, Mm -hmm. and we have a specific fund set up by another local ranch that pays for processing. Nice. So the rancher who donates the beef gets a nice tax deduction, the local processor gets paid, and the beef we've got in our food pantry is all natural, organic, grass-fed, never-been-out-of-park county beef. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> Everybody wins, you, yes. Yeah, everybody wins. If you want the best beef in town, you come to the food pantry. You come to the food pantry. That was my... Uh, yeah, my reaction. <laughs> and I happen to know about White Park cattle, that you have the, that, that breeding herd of White Park cattle, which right, there's like right. only one in the world or something is right. Oh, it's it's yeah, crazy, right? It's the only one in the world, yeah. Uh, well, there aren't very many if there are, no, right? No, yeah, it's a very special breed, and this, this uh, herd that is maintained uh, close to us is, is, I think, maybe the last pure um, strain of mm-hmm. white park cattle. Right. So right. It's, it's pretty special meat. Yeah, yeah. It's it's terrific. So I asked you this question um, when I was visiting the food pantry because I think there is this perception that folks, um, like you go into your food pantry and you don't see a lot of recognizable brands and you see all this food that requires cooking and we have this this idea that people don't know how to cook and so they don't know how to even deal with food like you have. So what have you done to address that? Because I know you've been working on that. 
Well, in fact, yes, yeah, we have, Tara. And um, we just did the, the first day of spring, we had a special promotion. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, just saying we had a special promotion makes us sound exactly like who we want to sound like, Whole right. Foods. Right, You know, we had this special promotion called Spring into Cooking. Mm-hmm. Pretty clever, huh? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You're a marketing guy, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I can't, yeah, I just can't, can't get, get, get away, away from, from it. it. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but we, Spring into Cooking provided a, a bag of kitchen staples. Hmm. Um, Cooking oil, olive oil, flour, salt, sugar, uh, spices, uh, to over 300 families. Wow. And because, to your point, what what we are doing here is distributing this really good food, and a lot of it, again, we will process ourselves. Mm -hmm. We make our own pasta sauces and soups and stews and chili and... You know, you can come in our food pantry and get a, um, a, a, a roasted uh, seasoned chicken that vacuum-packed. All you've got to do is go home and heat it up. Mm-hmm. So you've, we've got that, that food, but then we also distribute a lot of fresh and, and uh, wonderful food that people need to go home and, and prepare to cook. Mm-hmm. And we really encourage that. Mm-hmm. And so we, what we found was, because we do series of cooking classes for low-income households. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no fancy French sauces or anything. It's, right. It's here's here's how you can feed your family on five dollars a day, mm-hmm. um, and and do it mm-hmm. nutritiously. So we did this spring into cooking. We provided all the staples. Now we're following up with a series of these cooking classes, you know, designed specifically for pantry clients, food pantry clients. And so we're constantly doing that. We have uh, visiting dietetic interns from MSU. We do, you know, ask the dietician, you know, Mm. if you come in and you've got a question about your diet or what have you. Uh, so we do a lot in terms of education and encouraging people to cook and to cook in, in, a, in a way that really supports good health. Um, we do something we call Crock-Pot Day. Mm-hmm. About once a quarter, we will, we will prepare three different recipes um, using food that is available in the food pantry. Mm-hmm. And we have these crock pots out on a, on a counter in the food pantry, and we've got the little cups and spoons. And, like going to Costco. Just like going to Costco on a Saturday afternoon. Right, you, right. you nailed it. Yep. You got it. <laughs> and people come in, and, and they'll sample this food, and, you know, they 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 can't believe that it, that it's so good when we tell them that it's so nutritious. Mm-hmm. You know, we introduce people in our food pantry to lentils and winter squash mm-hmm. and what have you, and stuff that most of these people have never 
had access to. They've mm-hmm. never eaten. Mm-hmm. And when they when they taste our our lentil soup, for instance, and and love it, one of our volunteers who is working there uh, with with the crockpots and doing the sampling will explain to them why it's so good and so nutritious, and we'll give them the recipe and the list of ingredients and help them choose, you know, the ingredients they want mm-hmm. so that they can go home and, and prepare mm-hmm. that lentil soup or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So we do a lot to to help introduce people to good local nutritious food. Right. Right. So I, I, you got to tell people, too, about your other work um, coming up here with MSU on the, um, you know, the health impacts of eating at, the, at, at your pantry. Right. Yes. Yeah. That, that is a really exciting program that we're involved in with MSU, a, a team of uh, uh, researchers from MSU led by a professor who teaches in the sustainable food program at MSU. And she got a grant that originated with NIH mm-hmm. to do this research. So this is, I mean, you know more about this kind of research than I do, Tara, but this is serious academic work that's being done. And and my hope is that, that it will result in what I've been just kind of by the seat of my pants telling people uh, I think is important, and that is how we feed people who come into food pantries. Mm-hmm. Because the the team from MSU selected our food pantry for this research, and it's based on what what measurable changes in a person's health can be achieved by switching people away from the ultra-processed industrial cheap food that's typically on food pantry shelves, switching them to a diet of unprocessed or minimally processed food that is mostly local, mostly whole foods, um, and prepared in ways like we do here with no additives, no preservatives. Uh, it's all designed to support good health in people who are struggling with chronic illness. And the pilot is going on right now, and it's 16 weeks. And during the course of these 16 weeks, the, par- the participants and 20 people were selected very carefully uh, to participate, um, they're getting blood tests during the course of this 16 weeks. They're getting other types of uh, health measures, and they're getting education. They have to attend a class once a week. They come in and meet with and discuss their diets with uh, dietitians. Um, and the food they're getting is is really good, nutritious food. It's it's the food we should all be eating. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we were all eating this way, think about the, the amazing impact we could have on the health and well-being 
of not just Livingston, Montana, but this whole country. So they're tracking their health outcomes, and are they eating anything other, can they eat other things, or just, is part of being in this they have to agree to just eat from the pantry? No, they, part of the, the, the goal here is mm-hmm. to change how people think about, <clears throat> pardon me, how the People think about their diets mm-hmm. and the food they're eating, right? And and they're given incentive in the form of of credit at local grocery stores mm. to shop to go shop on their own, right? Um, and make these better food mm-hmm. decisions, mm-hmm. better food choices. So they're they're getting. Uh, we are estimating in the in the typical family that's participating in this program, they're get, getting probably half, uh, more than half to two thirds of their food coming from the food pantry. But okay. but they do need to supplement that. Right. Right. So. <laughs> So they're so they are going to follow their health indicators too, right? For sixteen weeks, right, mm-hmm. right. For sixteen weeks, these participants will meet regularly with um, people from the um, health department to get blood drawn, and and they're going to track A one C and other things. They'll get waist circumference, BMI, mm. weight, et cetera, all checked and recorded mm-hmm. and tracked. And the goal is that um, MSU wants to publish the results of this research project mm-hmm. and also to create a model of what we do here that will be shared with food pantries across the country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I saw a, a figure recently that was, I think it was, or was from Feeding America, but they estimated that there are 60,000 food pantries in this country. Yeah. And approximately 46 million people struggling with food insufficiency. Mm-hmm who depend, many of them, on food pantries for the food they eat. Think about, Tara, the multiplier here, the 60,000 food pantries. Mm -hmm. If we could make changes like we're doing here, if we could provide the food to this very vulnerable, at-risk population of almost 50 million people. Mm-hmm. Think of the impact that this country could have on poverty and health and well-being of its citizens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's astonishing. a remarkable opportunity. Yeah, it's a remarkable opportunity. And I think this is a great place for us to to take a deep breath and go, God, Michael, thank you for all that you've been doing. You are, um, you're such an innovator in an area that was so, uh, you know, in, I'll call it a sector, right? The, the food pantry as a sector that just was ripe for innovation. And 
it's so inspiring to listen to you and um, and hear what you've been doing. Well, thank you very much. There's a lot of people doing a lot of great things uh, there in are. this arena. Yeah, there um, are. I and I I think it's also particularly inspiring because you aren't. Yes, you have wealthy people who go fly fishing where you are, but you're still in a very rural community, and it's still a small right. population. And and I think yep. people think that this kind of innovative work will always happen in a big city, right? That that's where all this good new stuff happens. And I don't think that's true. And and I think that you know part of what is so fantastic about your story is that it's happening in a smaller rural community. Yeah, I think, you know, that comes back, Tara, to the point I made earlier about the size of the marketplace. Mm-hmm. You know, we we can make changes, we can make decisions quickly, and, and make a, a change to something we're doing, and measure the response, measure the results almost immediately. Right, right. And, and it isn't respond. trying to... Yeah, you're not yeah. trying to change, you know, redirect an ocean liner because you're not in New York City, right? So, right. Yeah. But, but the point I want to make in that regard is that, and this is a, a case study that we had here. We had a, a group of people who were here uh, on vacation from New York City, mm-hmm. and they listened to and and saw what we do here. And one of the people said, well, gee, you know, we couldn't do this in New York City. It's just too big, too Mm -hmm. overwhelming. And I said, no, you can do it in New York City because, and don't look at the entirety of New York City. To do something like this, break it down into manageable segments. Mm -hmm. I mean, in New York City, I've lived in New York City, there are... New York City is just a whole bunch of little neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So define your neighborhood. You know, it may be a a ten block area, mm-hmm. but tackle that ten blocks. Mm-hmm. And if you do it successfully, maybe somebody in the adjoining ten blocks mm-hmm. will say, "Gee, we can do that." Mm-hmm. And pretty soon, you've got you've got it covered. Right. So, Michael, we're going to have to talk to you again after this, um, after Michigan State, you know, because I think we're all going to be interested. Uh, I'm certainly going to be interested, and I bet my our listeners will be too, about what the results are uh, over time, right? And to have a third oh. party like that doing that monitoring so we can check back with you and find out because because you know all of us would say the same thing that we have in at the instinctual level we say helping people changing what they're eating is going to help their health outcomes and it's going to help their economic you know prosperity and their families but having having michigan state working with you to track that it'll be fascinating to see how that comes out that okay let's let's Sarah, let's change that to Montana State. Montana State. Oh, okay. I MSU. I was thinking it was Michigan. And you know what? Good. It's Montana. And thank you for correcting me. And, you know, part of the reason I thought of Michigan was their Michigan State is really progressive in their food system work. So I I was always Mm -hmm. thinking MSU. Okay, well, of course it's Michigan, right? Because they're always doing such great things. But now it's Montana even better. 
All right, Montana State University. Okay, that's fantastic. So Montana State University. So, well, hey, thank you so much for joining us. I can't wait to get this episode out so people can hear everything you've been doing. Well, that's you're you're very flattering and generous with your comments. Thank you. You know, it it takes. Uh, who was it who said it? Originally, it takes a village, right? And you know, it, it really does. And mm-hmm. this this all, all of what we do would not have been accomplished without the the eager response from our community mm-hmm. and the people in it, both. At, at each end of the economic spectrum here, right. and and you know that's that's something that you touched on. I touched on is the the special uh, nature in in the sense that we we do have this um, pretty significant population of people re- who retire and come here and bring their their financial uh, capacity with them. Um, and, or have second homes here and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these people really get engaged in this community. I'm, I don't know if that happens in similar communities. All right. I, I don't it, think it does, and I think it's a testament to you because you've provided a way to get them engaged, right? Uh, well, I, I hope so. Yeah. Um, but then on the other end of that spectrum, Tara, we've got terrible poverty in this community. Mm-hmm. You know, there's very few people in the middle. Right. It's You're on one end or the other. You know, if, if you're not working for the hospital or maybe the city or the school system um, or have your own successful business, I'm, I, I can pretty much guarantee you that you're going to be struggling mm-hmm. to make a living. Right. Because most of the jobs are low pay, minimum wage, minimum, many of them seasonal because of tourism. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a tough place to survive. Mm-hmm. Well, it's amazing to hear what you've done, and I can't wait to follow up with you. Um, probably, what, six months from now? Probably six months, a year. It'll probably be a year um, before the, they have all the results, yeah, right? It's It's going to wrap up. This this sixteen weeks is really the pilot um, mm. because what Carmen anticipates is based on this there will be a larger study done that'll probably be more on the on twelve uh, month basis. I see. Like that. Yeah, that would make sense. So so it may be a while, but we're going to stay in touch. I'm going to stay in touch because I bet you're going to be continuing to innovate because that's you. You know, it's in your DNA. You're not going to keep doing the same old thing. Uh, yeah. 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 Hey, so thanks so I don't much. Like running in place. No. No, no. So right. we're well, so Sarah, lucky thanks. that you failed at retirement and you're doing what you're doing. Oh, this is this is way more fun than retirement. Oh God, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I can't. I have friends who who are retired, and I just I wonder. I worry about them. Yeah, wonder, yeah, yeah. What do they do all day? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I tell people yeah. I'm a farm girl from Wisconsin. I'm not going to be able to retire either. That's what we know. Yeah, is work, that's work, right? right? <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. Hey, it was great to talk to you. Thanks so much for spending time with us. Well, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you for for the opportunity. Yeah. And um, and we'll stay I'll, in touch. I'll keep you posted. I do. think the this initial sixteen week project will conclude in in June. I don't know how long it will take uh, the team to get you know the results. Uh, all, all compiled and and published, but I'll keep you. Uh, I'll keep you apprised. Yeah, do of that. let us. Yeah, do that. Do that. That would be great. Well, good to talk to you, Michael. You have a good um, good rest of the week. Yes, indeed. You too. And uh, and thank Zach for his work uh, with me getting this set up. No, I will. I will. All right. All right. Good to talk to you, Michael. Likewise. Thanks, Take care. Sarah. Yep. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.